Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of new thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool, cause you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed. Colin Orton, he, him, his host, host, human disaster, Al Gropey, she, her, hers, <laughs> guest, guest, and chaos goblin, Drew Harvey, he, him, his, welcome back everyone to your favorite monotone podcast getting informed today we're finishing off white for you nope not allowed to speak colin didn't you get the memo <laughs> now what did you have to say i'm just kidding a podcast where we open with several seconds of confused silence <laughs> as we try and figure out something to say <laughs> see that might be more on me because i didn't know what the like that the recording was going to be the the start start of the thing i thought it was going to you were going to say okay i hit record and then you were going to do another start so i was still talking no i just i just blast <laughs> into it bro all right well that's on me also i say bro a lot on air and never in my real life i think the uh, the colin huh. who records podcasts says bro a lot while Colin in real life does not. <laughs> I think it's because when you're on the podcast, you fully come into your older white man with a podcast vibe. Like <laughs> you fully inhabit yourself. So uh, here's the problem with women. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Wait, not that much. <laughs> anyway, welcome back, listeners. Today we're going to finish off White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo with chapters 9 through 12, White Fragility in Action, White Fragility and the Rules of Engagement, White Women's Tears, and Where Do We Go From Here? I should have been going quite, quite, quite. <laughs> um, but before that, I believe Colin has some news. It's actually a pretty light uh, Newsweek this week. Is uh, it so Christmas? Should I edit out some of the beep, 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 beep that I did? So, yeah, it's just beep, 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 beep. Yep, just a couple. <laughs> um, so this is a little bit of older news, but you guys are familiar with the Frick Park Bridge collapse in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this big bridge collapsed. Ten people were injured and four were hospitalized. Wasn't there also something like it could have been a lot worse if something, what was it? That's a great question. I know that there weren't a lot of people on the bridge. Mm-hmm. It happened. Well, that's definitely good. Yeah. I think it was like, if it wasn't for some kind of schedule change that happened suddenly, like oh. a lot more people. Oh, I think it was if, if full work days had been a thing. Mm-hmm. I think it was if COVID protocols oh. hadn't been. Or something like that. It's been a while. <clears throat> That's so wild. first, uh, it's really funny because Biden uh, was scheduled to give a speech about his infrastructure plan that day <laughs> in Pittsburgh. Oh, boy. Funnily enough. And second, uh, over the last six years, the city of Pittsburgh has diverted $4.2 billion, with a B, billion dollars out of their infrastructure program and into police. <laughs> Who is surprised? Uh, who uh, simply should have prevented that bridge from falling with uh, piles of money, I guess. I know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, piles of money would have definitely helped more than piles of guns. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Piles of cops. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do they still not know why the bridge collapsed? I think that, someone said there I'm was not... a smell of natural gas around the area. But... Oh, damn. Let me check here. Oh, um, a quick Google says that it was exactly what could have been stopped by infrastructure funding, which is just consistently deferring repairs and maintenance. Damn. Yeah, I was just thought that uh, police aren't very good at building and repairing bridges. Well, maybe if they got enough of them, they could just hold it up. Sheer manpower <laughs> and like force of will. Just human bridges. Yeah, actually. 
Hmm. Anyway. Uh, anyway, in other President Biden news, according to uh, Generalissimo Biden, the leader of ISIS was killed in an overnight raid uh, carried out in Syria on Thursday. So yesterday, January, uh, February 2nd, uh, 2022. Hmm. And now... Do I believe him? Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is an OPB article. And if you scroll down four paragraphs, there's just a one sentence blurb that reads, and I quote, first responders reported that 13 people had been killed, including six children and four women. Oh, yeah. Mm. This is at the assassination of the leader of ISIS or yeah. the bridge collapse. Okay. Sorry. I was confused. Which, so there was a uh, lot of collateral damage. Yeah, Biden said that uh, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Quriyashi, which, f- forgive me, I bet I fucking butchered that. Um, but, yeah, apparently he is dead. Well, and apparently Allegedly. it took the lives of six children and others Ugh. to make sure he yeah. was. Yeah, ten non-combatants, allegedly. Not your cleanest work, Joe. Well, and with the released drone strike footage... Oh, uh, from last August that killed like many fucking people. Yeah. Yeah. So Biden's slate on civilian casualties is not exactly awesome right now. Yeah. He plays too much GTA, I think. <laughs> you think he has the capacity to. Never mind. Speaking of things that. <laughs> I don't are think not he needs awesome, it. <laughs> truly. You can just like go for it. You you never need to be quiet on this show, just <laughs> uh, because this is a real bummer. Um, so you guys are familiar with those cute little robot dogs, right? You sent that article oh, no. in the chat. We talked about them last week. How? What have they done to them now? So you know how uh, last week we talked about Honolulu PD using them to take temperatures of houseless people in outdoor shelters. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Well, uh, the Science and Technology uh, Directorate is offering uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection robot dogs to help them in their duties. Horrible. Why? What would they even do? They've they've begun a program to, uh, quote, from uh, DHS.gov, force multiply the CBP presence as well as reduce human exposure to life-threatening hazards. Oh my God. So instead of six men with guns and a desire to kill at the border it's eight. in patrols, we have two men with four robot dogs with <laughs> guns mounted to their backs. You know what it is? People realize that dogs are too kind when they're not trained to attack aggressively. And so that's why they said, you know what? We need robot dogs with guns on their backs. Actual dogs aren't going to do the horrible crimes we want them to. I think it, when, when, once you put a gun on it, you have to stop calling it a robot dog and call it something else because a true robot dog would never. In all fairness, thus far, they've only mounted cameras on them. Mm. And they're essentially using them for surveillance. And they're still in, like, the testing protocols. But, still not great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing is um, they can carry 20 pounds worth of whatever on them. Mm. And the fact that they have legs and are very stable means that they can navigate, like, rocks and sand and debris mm-hmm. better than something with treads. Yeah. Let them live. N- no. <laughs> Both it's so bad. People trying to cross the border and the robot dogs. Just let them both live. Like, don't bother them. Remember, in the early stages of the of the pandemic, we had uh, medical workers wearing trash bags because we ran out of PPE. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that. But DHS gets robot dogs. There What's is the next? okay. There's there's some some more bad news. Uh, there's just a really interesting article here. Uh, on the Daily Beast, uh, mm-hmm. which is that Amazon sells a shitload of Nazi books. <laughs> they don't sell anything like too overt, uh, like Siege or the Turner Diaries. Um, as but well do as they like, sell Mein Kampf? <laughs> uh, well, that, yeah. Um, yeah. That's like a 
that's also like a you know a historical document. Uh huh. But of what history, Colin? <laughs> well, yes. Like, don't get me wrong. It's a Nazi book, but like I understand them keeping that mm-hmm. right. Like, if 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 someone someone were to have like said offhand to me at some point in conversation, yes, I've read it. I wouldn't immediately label them in my Nazi in my head. Um, I would, I mean, there's one question whose answer determines whether or not that does happen, which is, was it for like a class or something or (laughs) genuine interest in history? Like actually, even though that that's a little shaky too. One of Richard Spencer's books is for sale there. A bunch of like, European wow. far right groups have books that are still for sale yeah. on Amazon. Okay. Anyway, it's basically the reason I included that is because in White Fragility, Robin DeAngelo talks a lot about how, you know, uh, with the basically increase of interpersonal responsibility for racism, you can begin to combat the systems that basically uphold racism, you know? Mm. Mm. Like the the systems that make racism different than prejudice, mm-hmm. and like yes, don't get me wrong, that's square zero <laughs> or square one rather. Yeah. But at the same time, she's doing these uh, like sensitivity training and like racial awareness trainings at mm-hmm. a company that sells books by Richard Spencer. Yeah. So because yeah. the system in which we live is inherently racist Mm. and profits and sustains itself Mm -hmm. by racism. At the end of the book, she starts, she gives her little like call to action spiel where she's like, remember that even I am not done learning and growing. And even I am not pure, clean of racism. Even I, and I'm like, yeah, clearly. Yeah. Sorry. There is one piece of good news. Yeah. Hit me. You know, you know how I mentioned uh, last week that Patriot Front have been uh, basically thoroughly undermined and doxxed by anti-fascists? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a really prominent uh, far-right propagandist who did his majority uh, of his posting through a three-person team at Media to Rise, which was, was a you know right-wing propaganda, whatever, under the under the surname Luca. Gorgiat has been doxxed and uh, like even the uh, yeah the the Southern Poverty Law Center article Mm -hmm. on him lists his full name age and town in which he lives in the headline and it fucking rules I'm not going to say it here but I will link it when the episode comes out Uh, and if any of you happen to live in Billings Montana uh, so you are going to say it here. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say the town, but I'm not going to give him any credit. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> uh, this is not a call to violence. Just, you know, know call that, to awareness. Know that, yeah, uh, uh, a Patriot Front member lives among you. Uh, Might go to the same coffee shop as you. Amogus. <laughs> Amogus. Oh, <laughs> oh, my humor has been utterly and completely broken by the internet. Have you seen those videos uh, from their edits of the final boss fight from Metal Gear Solid Revengeance? Oh god, what is, no. I've seen that boss fight. Oh, What's the edit? Yeah, there's a lot of them. There's a lot <laughs> of them. Uh, and they all are fucking bonkers. <laughs> uh, like, you know, it's it'll be like Senator Armstrong stomping his foot down and going like, check it out, Raiden. I just got vaccinated. Like, it's just, <laughs> just wild shit. Um, and that has completely broken like any coherent, like normal sense of humor that I have had. And now my entire sense of humor is just Senator Armstrong. My so brain is broken. <laughs> this is a really long tangent that we can and probably should cut out. But... <laughs> Uh, I've enjoyed it. <laughs> I think we keep it. I've had a great time. All right. Shall we get into the reading? Yeah. Now that we have, uh, now that I have made this about me, let's get into the reading. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we finish off the book here. And first thing I want to say is I don't have much to say. 
uh, as we, you know how last week we only did an hour long recording session, hour and a half, because we were like, she kind of sort of rephrases the same point and articulates it from different directions a lot. Yeah. I felt like this was more of that. Yeah. The more, the deeper I got into this one, like I started, I, I started off more or less on Robin's side, I would say. Like, I feel like the, the book starts off at least making some pretty valid points and, and some neat analyses. Um, and then as it goes on, it feels more and more like uh, me writing a research paper that I really have not done enough research for. Um, <laughs> you know, like, you, you know. You would have loved manufacturing consent. Oh, God. <laughs> but no, like, I'm, I'm uh, like, I, I can see it because I've done it. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, and like, go, ahead, go for go it, ahead. please, Al. Well, I just wanted to point out how many fucking lists there are yeah. in these last four chapters. She does like 12 bullet point lists. Mm-hmm. And they're all like a half a page. At it least. feels like filler. Yeah. Um, but what at were you least, Oh, at least manufacturing consent, like, is a really dense document. Mm. That and actually so, like, has a lot of. Not that. Wait, no, hold on. Let me rephrase because that was about to sound awful finish your thought oh just like manufacturing consent like makes some fucking claims Mm -hmm. and then goes in and is like now we've made a claim that u.s media exists on a propaganda model here's an example of that happening here's another example of that happening Mm. here's a third for like 400 pages (laughs) like (laughs) like yeah and obviously the structure of racism is incredibly complex and deep and it should be explored from multiple angles and it should be rephrased from multiple points of view, but she doesn't even really do that. I think the chapter that had the most actually important, like new information about the dangers of white fragility in modern day and in the workplace was white women's tears. Hmm. And I don't know why she didn't put it further back in the book, like in the middle where her strongest points were. Because I feel like, well, let's start with chapter nine. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. No, no, please. Chapter nine, white fragility in action. This is a lot more of her examples from the real world, real things that she saw happening in her sensitivity workshops. And then the rest of the chapter is basically just lists of feelings and things one can say. (laughs) To either say that they're not racist or, yeah, yeah. Basically, it's just a bunch of lists of, if you hear someone say this, they're probably expressing unconscious racism. Hmm. Um, Just, just, I feel, I think I said it last week too, these chapters near the end as she's listing and like, oh, this, you might hear this or this. Um, It's reading more and more like a self-help book, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but. I mean, it is a self-help book in a way. It's sure. written for white yeah. people by a white person about how to be less racist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I think also with the emphasis on, and again, don't get me wrong, like she makes some really excellent points about like, hey, if you're racist to your friend who is a person of color, don't pretend it didn't happen. Mm. Yeah. Apologize and not in a way that makes them feel like you're gaslighting them yeah, and then like try and do better. Mm. Don't freak out. Don't make them feel guilty for bringing it up to you. Like there's, there is some genuinely sound advice there. Like, especially because white people are very intentionally not trained Mm -hmm. in how to deal with this kind of shit. Right. That being said, the focus on like, that's a huge focus and that is very important stuff, but the, the absolute refusal to address any kind of systemic issue or like larger political issue, because again, this isn't the scope of the book and that's not Robin's whole deal limits the book. And I think, uh, really takes away some of its edge and just serves to remind the reader that she is a corporate trainer who charges hundreds of dollars Mm. per person. Yep. 
Yeah, I do agree. I don't want to make it sound like White Women's Tears was the only chapter I found poignant at all because, oh boy, how self-centered does that sound? Mm, the chapter that sounded the most inspiring to me was about white women. Um, no, but I do really love, I wouldn't say love. She ends with a very long anecdote about an example of when she realized she had been racist and how she approached apologizing to that person and growing from it. And I do, I think we should read it when we get to that chapter, we should just read the whole thing because she gives a lot of anecdotes in the book, but rarely does she acknowledge like that. She's, she does constantly use herself as an example of, Oh, I have racial bias, but she doesn't like out herself, I guess. But this is her kind of being like, yes, this is an example of when I was like, potently racist and how I did not let that stop my progress towards Mm. anti-racism. And like, I liked the part about white guilt when like, cause she says the people in response to her training will say, aren't you just perpetuating white guilt and making the problem worse by like white, if white guilt is so uh, paralyzing that it makes you unable to actually take action towards anti-racism, then why are you making white people feel so bad about themselves? And she's like, well, the, the main emotion you should experience in relationship to your efforts towards anti-racism shouldn't be guilt. Like it shouldn't be you, just because you participate in the system and you are responsible for your participation in the system of racism does not mean it is a participation that you asked for. Mm-hmm. You are responsible for it, but not guilty of it, you know? I will. I do think too, <clears throat> and to that point, and it's in one of her lists, but, and of course I won't be able to uh, tell you what shit's from because there's 8 billion of them in these last four chapters, but in one of her lists, uh, I think it's in one of her like things to remember uh, uh, sections. She does make the point. I think it was something like action is the antidote for guilt. And I thought that, I mean, I thought that in of itself was like a cool, I mean, I'm sure she's not the first to have said something like that, but it's inclusion here with the discussion of something like white guilt, I think is a really potent uh, point to make. I don't see a lot to discuss in the chapter white fragility in action because it's literally seven pages long. And four of those pages are lists of emotions. Um, (laughs) So let's move on to white fragility and the rules of engagement, if we're okay with that. <laughs> cool, because I actually, I don't want to discredit this chapter because even though it didn't really like strike a huge chord, it did establish patterns of behavior. In this chapter, she outlines the contradictory and hypocritical quote unquote rules of engagement for talking to a white person about race And let me just quickly read through the 11 rules Mm -hmm. that contradict each other because she's trying to point out the fact that we've made it impossible to talk about race without breaking these rules. The first rule is do not give me feedback on my racism under any circumstances. (laughs) If you insist on breaking the cardinal rule, then you must follow these others. And there are 10 more. Proper tone is crucial. Feedback must be given calmly. If any emotion is displayed, the feedback is invalid and can be dismissed. There must be trust between us. You must trust that I am not racist before you can give me feedback on my racism. A relationship must be issue-free. If there are issues between us, you can't give me feedback on racism until these issues are resolved. Feedback must be given immediately. If you wait too long, the feedback will be discounted because it was not given sooner. You must give feedback privately, regardless of whether the incident occurred in front of other people. To give feedback in front of any others who are involved in the situation is to commit a serious social transgression mm-hmm. if you cannot protect me from embarrassment the feedback is invalid and you are the transgressor you must be as indirect as possible i must <laughs> feel completely safe during any discussion of race point of clarification when i say safe what i mean is comfortable mm-hmm. like and it just goes on of like the fact that literally no progressive discussion no meaningful discussion can be had about race or racism with these rules it is paralyzing to play nice. She uses the word nice a lot. And mm-hmm. like mainly the thing white people want from people of color when addressing the racism is to be nice. But the way that we have structured being nice makes it impossible to actually, I'm rephrasing myself. I'm going in circles. Well, yeah, but it, it's, it deals with what she, with what she writes there um, <clears throat> about 
equating safe with comfortable. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, Al, the issue is in many ways circular. So you're. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your fault. Yeah. Around and around we go. Uh-huh. You're absolutely right, Drew, about the equating niceness versus comfortability. Mm-hmm. Um, and how uh, it's not nice to challenge somebody uh, if they do something racist. Or rather, not nice. It violates that comfortability barrier, which is then perceived as not nice. Right. It is, it's, you know, quote, objectively, nice. <laughs> you know, for the greater societal good. But of course. Know. Yeah. Yeah. She always she also talks about the idea of assumptions and truth and that mm. they are really when it's coming from a white person saying like, oh, you're making assumptions about me. Don't make assumptions or let me speak my truth. And if it doesn't sound like what happened to you, then you're being mm-hmm. regressive or reductive. The, the point of the matter is that assumptions and truth really don't mean anything in a discussion about racism. And she says it pretty poignantly in like these two in this one paragraph guidelines such as those above can also be turned against people of color if you challenge my racial patterns then you are assuming that what i did was rated in racism and you shouldn't make assumptions or you are denying my truth that race has nothing to do with my actions there's one part where she says that obviously if your truth is that you are not racist then that's not a truth it's a false belief so we can't really talk about speaking your truth with white people when it comes to racism because obviously mm. what is your truth is not the, the truth, truth. <laughs> yeah. i mean ultimately uh we've reached a sort of challenging point in our discussion where mm. she is state she is She's going in circles now. Yeah. Well, the last the last four you know chapters of the book are essentially the culmination. She is both summarizing what she started with and sort of being like, "Here's the final concrete evidence. Mm. Here's we've reached the end of our road, and so we've already sort of engaged with a lot of the ideas that she's introduced, mm-hmm. and so these are just the furthering of those ideas." Mm. And then the book ends. <laughs> it does really just kind of end too. I thought it was really funny, and this is jumping ahead a little bit. But Drew, uh, you mentioned a couple recording sessions ago. You know what the future would be like if uh, every white person suddenly had this. You know the systemically ingrained behaviors of racism. If they suddenly just all became conscious at once, right? And she kind of puts that image out there too. Uh, a little bit there at the end. Um, oh, sure, 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 sure. Uh, which I don't think she does it in in that much of a, you know, sudden, uh, like, utopian way. But she mm. talks a little bit about how, like, if everybody was conscious, then maybe those systems wouldn't exist. And, like, yeah, systems exist because people want them to. <laughs> and then people don't think about them. Mm-hmm. And those two things make, you know, over Mm -hmm. centuries, blah, 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 systems are ephemeral, (laughs) ideology, ideology, Zizek. (laughs) (laughs) Ideology. Um, I really do want to quickly touch on white women's tears. I know I've mentioned it seven times, but I just feel like you are correct. And I agree with you that like these last four chapters, it's hard to find something to say because it's the culmination of her points. But White Woman's Tears belongs in the first or second half of this book. I agree. I agree. I think I think White Woman's Tears is as far back as it is mm. because a lot of pills need to be swallowed before you get to the White Women's Tears part. Hmm. Like White Women's Tears is as far back as it is because it's the last hurdle for her target demographic who may in fact be well-read white women. I would say probably majority well-read white women. (laughs) Uh, Quotes on um, (laughs) well-read. Fun fun thing about uh, phrases like well-read, they don't fucking mean anything. Uh, (laughs) So why it takes, as Colin said, so many pills to swallow first before we get to white women's tears is because... (laughs) Listen, 
we've all heard the story of Emmett Till and she repeats it here how a young black man Emmett Till was allegedly and the allegedly is important flirting with a white woman who then told her husband who then went out and lynched 14 year old Emmett Till we've all heard that story and about how she later admitted she was lying and that he hadn't been flirting with her and how the men later confessed to the crime, but were acquitted to serve no charges. Like we know that story, Yeah. but some of us fail to realize that it is not the only story of its kind. And that truth be told, the tears of white women have caused the deaths of black men. And she phrases it. White women's tears and cross racial interactions are problematic for several reasons connected to how they impact others. For example, there is a long historical backdrop of black men being tortured and murdered because of a white woman's distress, and we white women bring these histories with us. Our tears trigger the terrorism of this history, particularly for African Americans. Skip forward a bit. She tells the story of Emmett Till. The murder of Emmett Till is just one example of the history that informs an oft-repeated warning from my African-American colleagues. When a white woman cries, a black man gets hurt. Not knowing or being sensitive to this history is another example of white centrality, individualism, and lack of racial humility. And she points out how even, first of all, white men come rushing to our, to the white woman's aid. I almost said our aid, but you know what? I am a white woman. So yeah, when a white woman cries in a cross-racial interaction, not only do white men come to our aid, the entire like direction of the conversation has to stop and focus on our comfort. And even men of color, women and men of color, feel the need to put aside their feelings of hurt to assuage us for fear of survival it is a survival mechanism to make sure that the white woman here it is ameliorating a white woman's distress as quickly as possible may be felt as a literal matter of survival in brackets for people of color she's discussing people of color at this point yet coming to the rescue of a white woman also drives a wedge between men and women of color rather than receive social capital that reinforces his status a man of color put in this position must now live with the agony of having to support a white woman over a person of color in order to survive this i think is one of the most incisive chapters in the book for sure Mm -hmm. and i think that you're absolutely right al that rhetorically it would make way more sense if it came earlier but I think that given that it is also one of the hardest hitting and engages directly with a group that I think is her target demographic, mm -hmm. I think it has to come last because it is kind of the final hurdle. Yeah. I mean, when you think of, she mentions the fact that like, of course we don't cry with the intention of drawing attention away from the conversation or of making people come to our aid and everything. But we may not realize that when we cry tears of what we feel are compassion during a discussion on cross-racial of anything in cross-racial discussions, like, first of all, it's not about us that automatically makes it about us. And it presents this like, Oh, I have so much empathy. I'm one of the good ones. Like it's such a white feminist thing to do is make a conversation about racial turmoil about you by crying and demanding comfort until you're done. And I think that part of what you were saying, like she leaves it for so long because she's talking to her intended demographic is because maybe her intended demographic isn't just quote unquote, well-read white majority women. I think it's white feminists. Exactly. the kind oh, of for sure. Yeah. That crying in the sensitivity workshop makes them so woke. Like, mm. oh, I feel such empathy for the people of color around me who are hurting every day. Doesn't that make me one of the good ones? Hmm. Like, fucking shut up <laughs> sorry <laughs> she calls out class reductionism mm. which yeah for sure but also uh the the fact that she like doesn't really address any other class stuff makes me think <laughs> a little bit like oh so mentioning class at all is deflecting mm. and of course that's I don't want to put words in her mouth because of course in a, in a like racial sensitivity seminar saying the real oppression is class, which I think is the exact quote that she used she is of course a deflection. That's a fucking deflection, bro. Mm. But um, the, that being the only instance where class is brought up in the sort of conversation mm -hmm. 
kind of sheds a bad light on people who mention class as well as race because mm-hmm. the two things intersect. It's you can't. Um, and, and of course, you know, they reinforce each other because mm-hmm. systems, capitalism, white supremacy, blah, 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 blah. Cause that's what um, they do. The but, other thing is that, Oh, please. please. Well, I just want to, for the listener, if you've been listening along, but not reading along, um, we've mentioned before on earlier episodes of this book that she barely mentions class. Um, what Colin's talking about is the fact that, Oh, she mentions class, but only to say that suggesting that class is the issue and not race is a deflection, which, in, which as Colin said, in a racial sensitivity workshop is a deflection, but in the larger conversation, this, yeah. <laughs> hence Colin's point. I just yeah. wanted to provide some backgrounds to For make sure. your point stand out that yes, class is involved. It's not always a deflection. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, if, if you say what the quote that she uses, that it, oh, the real oppression is class. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, oh, God, what was the other thing? Hang on. Uh, White my, my men. T- yes. Uh, oh, the, the other thing of uh, listing books you have read as a defense <laughs> uh, of accusations of racism. That was very funny. That um, <laughs> did make me giggle. Because... Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, that if I was called on something and I, I could, you know, I could there, there is a universe where I could see myself doing that. Uh, all right. Fair enough. Like, <laughs> you know, it's the um, we see reflections of ourselves like. Oh, yeah. Oh, and that I think one of the strengths of this book is that she has done her research like Robin mm-hmm. D'Angelo knows a thing or two about what white people say when accused of racism. doing a racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no, I did a racist. Not again. I did a racist thing. Um, well, because she's seen it every day for 20 years. Yes. <laughs> Precisely. And we, we have, I think, last episode pretty comprehensively gone over what we view to be the weaknesses of this text. Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we if, did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> we spent our time. <laughs> if if we're comfortable with it, I want to. I'm happy like rounding out. Yeah. This reading a little bit early. I want to end with that anecdote she gives at in the final chapter that outs herself as having absolutely done racist stuff, and then the portion later where she basically walks back that interaction and says so point by point here is how i treated that interaction Mm -hmm. and yeah Yeah. okay yeah it'll make sense when i do it so here's the story once upon a time no um in a land far far away montana Uh, (laughs) um the equity team has been invited to a meeting with the company's new web developer The team consists of two women, both of whom are black, and me. The new web developer, who is also black, wants to interview us so that she can build our page. She starts the meeting by giving us a survey to fill out. Many questions on the survey inquire about our intended audience, methods, goals, and objectives. I find the questions tedious and feel irritated by them. Pushing the survey aside, I try to explain verbally. I tell the web developer that we go out into the satellite offices to facilitate anti-racism training. I add that the training is not always well received. In fact, one member of our team was told not to come back. I make a joke. The white people were scared by Deborah's hair. Parenthesis. Deborah is black and has long locked braids. The meeting ends and we move on. Which, oh my god, girl. (laughs) What? A few days later, one of my team members lets me know that the web developer, who I will call Angela, was offended by my hair comment. Shocker. (laughs) While I wasn't paying attention at the time, once I am informed, I quickly realize why that comment was off. No shit. (laughs) I seek out a friend who is white and has a solid understanding of cross-racial dynamics. We discuss my feelings, embarrassment, shame, guilt, and then she helps me identify the various ways my racism was revealed in that interaction. After this processing, I feel ready to repair the relationship. I ask Angela to meet with me, and she accepts. I open by asking Angela, Would you be willing to grant me the opportunity to repair the racism I perpetrated toward you in that meeting? When she agrees, I continue. I realize that my comment about Deborah's hair was inappropriate. 
Angela nods and explains that she did not know me and did not want me joking about black women's hair, parenthesis, a sensitive issue for many black women. Ah, yeah. Uh, With a white woman whom she did not have a trusting relationship with, much less in a professional work meeting. How did you think this was okay, Robin? Okay. I apologize. Oh, Colin, you have something to say. I apologize and ask her if I have missed anything else problematic in the meeting. Yes, she replies. That survey? I wrote that survey, and I have spent my life justifying my intelligence to white people. My chest constricts as I immediately realize the impact of my glib dismissal of the survey. I acknowledge this impact and apologize. She accepts my apology. I ask Angela if there is anything else that needs to be said or heard so that we may move forward. She replies that yes, there is. The next time you do something like this, would you like feedback publicly or privately, she asks. I answer that given my role as an educator, I would appreciate receiving the feedback publicly as it is important for white people to see that I am also engaged in a lifelong process of learning and growth. And I could model for other white people how to receive feedback openly and without defensiveness. And I'm not going to do the last part of the story because it's literally just a little bit congratulating herself. <laughs> like she's just like, oh, and of course, Angela acknowledged that um, I'm one of the few white people that willingly <laughs> tries to repair their racism. And I'm like, there was no need to add that congratulatory statement mm. for yourself at the end to point out, oh, even though I did a racist, I'm still one of the good one ones. of the good ones. Right. But when we think about that example, she does walk it back and basically talk through all the steps that she took. And I want to talk through them as well, because even though I find the story kind of ridiculous, I do think that the arc of the story has an important message. I'm sorry, Colin, did you have something you wanted to say? No, it's good for her for putting in like a personal story, you know, like is the story insensitive and deeply cringe? Yes. Is it the type of microaggression that constantly happens yes. even from people who are racial sensitivity trainers? Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, there seems like it. <laughs> like, you know, that it yeah. probably I'm, I think that this book would uh, not have the same weight at all if this story was not in there Yeah, because she wouldn't be walking the walk, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I should I guess I shouldn't give her too much shit about uh having said that off comment because of the fact that she brings it up to It's not an ideal comment, but still, yeah, no. you know, it's it's <laughs> the whole purpose of it is to like point out the fact that she is growing and she is still learning. And that is the uh the kind of note of the... that she ends the book on too, just of like, yeah, like I get it. <laughs> Where it's I I I had a clear, uh, clear uh, thought of it in my head when I started this <laughs> statement, but that, you know, that's the basic idea of it is just, you know, it's a process and mm-hmm. <clears throat> a nonstop process. Yeah. Unlearning is not something you ever stop doing. Right. Mm-hmm. I found the part where she walks it back and discusses for my point what was happened. I'll try and paraphrase it as best as I can because it is like two pages, but I'll get, I'll get the important points. First, once I was aware that I had behaved problematically, I took the time to process my reaction with another white person. It was not Angela's duty to take care of my feelings or feel pressure to reassure me. I was also careful to choose someone who I knew would hold me accountable, not someone who would insist that, oh, Angela was too sensitive. After I vented my feelings, we did our best to identify how I had reinforced racism. I was then ready to return to Angela. I was clear and open about why I wanted to meet with her and asked her if she'd be willing to meet. And I was prepared for her to say no. If I couldn't accept no for an answer, then it wouldn't have been an authentic apology. When we met, I owned my racism. I did not focus on my intentions, but focused on the impact of my behavior and apologized for that impact. Nor did I use passive framing such as if you were offended. Hmm. I simply admitted that my behavior was offensive. I skipped forward a bit. There's this big parenthesis about what you were mentioning earlier, which is like subtly gaslighting a person of color with an apology to make them feel sensitive. Hmm. You know, I simply admitted that my behavior was offensive, recognizing that I, as a white person, as well as my white friend who had helped me process my feelings would most likely not understand all the dynamics. I asked Angela what I had missed. She was willing to enlighten me further, and I accepted this feedback and apologized. 
I made a commitment to do better. And I was closed by asking her if there was anything else that needed to be said or heard so that we might move forward. And honestly, like if you take anything away from this book, take that. Mm -hmm. So in closing, I think this book definitely is useful. Absolutely. But the fact, and like the fact that it swept the nation at the beginning of the George Floyd uprising is not exactly surprising. Mm-hmm. Mm. It is, however, disappointing yeah. because this book swept sort of white liberal America during, you know, March through May. No, May through June. Jesus Christ. Brain. Uh, May through June of 2020 and, and, and that whole summer. And that is not the fucking ideology that will actually help anyone. Mm-hmm. It's especially not in that context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does this book provide useful tools for white liberals to kind of take the, I'm one of the good ones sunglasses off. Sure. Was it a text that was a good text for summer of 2020? No, no, no. The fact that white liberals rushed to read a book called White Fragility written by a white woman in response to the murder of George Floyd and the resulting protests, rather than the many, (laughs) many books by black authors that had been written years ago, 40 years old books, establishing texts it's fucking disappointing i agree this provides useful strategies for combating one's own racist biases and prejudices on a social day-to-day casual level but this should not have been the definitive text for white liberals at the beginning of 2020 this book is i will say the uh charcuterie board of um what the, is, i will say it is the charcuterie board of like race theory <laughs> i see where you're going right okay like trendy right, right like trendy and hippie. like and and like has like a lot of like kind of like neat little different parts that you're like oh i can i recognize that oh i see that like i know where kind that's from easy and eye-catching right super except right like but not super accessible but like you're not going to eat it for dinner right you might bring it to a party share a bit see how everyone's feeling no one's gonna riot though if it's not there Except for the really pretentious people. That, I think, works both with... I demand a charcuterie board. (laughs) Colin, any closing thoughts? This book, man. We're going to talk about the next book we're going to read, because we're going to read read something... Can we read a good book? Yes. (laughs) Yes. We're going to read a good book next. two bad books in a row. I mean, this book wasn't nearly as bad as Gibney, but... Yeah. Um, this book was, uh, I would say, at worst, misleading. Yeah. Mm. At, at points, not the whole way through, just at points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gibney's book was downright delusional, yeah. uh, harmful. That was uh, downright, like, skewed graphs. Like, psychotic in a, at least it was funny. Cherry, it was funny. <laughs> I, was, I was straightening up, on, like, above the cupboards where we keep the reference books. <laughs> today literally and and i saw that one i like picked it up off of its side and like got fucking like not even flashbacks but just like from what you from what told i me, was from ranting you, to you about I was, it. Like, I was like oh ooh, that's the one. Oh god yeah. <laughs> i would like to end with a quick trip to the scamalier please it's time for a trip to the scamalier hey I forgot we have a theme song <laughs> yes we've always had the theme song calling go back and listen oh i i, I no, yeah, go for it <laughs> <laughs> well this book made me think about some other books by black authors that i've read uh that i feel would be beneficial and the one that i got from this reading particularly from white women's tears which as i've mentioned a million times was like the best chapter <laughs> um but the book men we reaped by jesmyn ward is a heart-wrenching and beautiful 
And it's pretty much an anthology of all of the black men in this young black woman's life that have died for one reason or another as she was growing up, all taken out in some way by the system. Oof. But it is it balances these, again, heart wrenching portrayals of racial injustice and of the system picking people off, whether it's by drugs, whether it's by violence, whether it's by inaccessibility to needed resources but it also is infused with such beautiful descriptions of joy and family and friendship and i don't know i just i think i think everyone could benefit from reading men we raped i don't want you to cry i mean well i don't want it to be white women's tears i don't i'm not trying to like here's a sad book so you can cry your white tears and feel better about your white guilt no this is a book that is both will both make you cry and I hope will at one point in white fragility, Robin D'Angelo talks about how he, the, the privilege of humanity is not extended to a lot of people of color by white men who are the ones in the position to extend it. It wasn't extended to white women for a long time. And then slowly mm-hmm. white women gained more privileges because it benefited white men but women of color and men of color have not been extended that same privilege, the privilege to be seen as human by those in power. But Men We Reaped is just such a humanizing book. And I don't know, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. I think everyone should read it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And that has been Giving <laughs> Informed, a leftist lit podcast. Who have you been? I have been Colin Orton, he, him, his. You can find me at... Uh, the 13 colonies spelled like my name on Instagram and at my name on Twitter. You can find this podcast at leftist lit pod on Twitter or send us hate mail at getting informed pod at gmail.com. I have not gotten any hate mail yet. I've just gotten a lot of uh, like really awesome outreach from very cool people. So um, should I send you some hate mail? Yeah, Paula? I was going to offer to do so if you want. Yeah. Yeah. I'll pretend Who have you to be in Oh, um, I haven't been anyone. Who have you been? What do you mean? You've been what? on this podcast longer than I have. I have been Al Groby. She, her, hers for now. Um, you can find me on Instagram at al.grows. That's G-R-O-S. And on my website, if I ever resubscribe to Wix at alisongropy.com. And Drew, who have you been? I have been Drew Harvey, your uh, wandering uh, book buddy. Um, I, hopefully I'll be back at some point. Um, it's been a blast y'all. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh.